Welcome to Stumble Upon. I'm Austin. And I'm Emily. Today we're discussing Smithereens, directed by Susan Seidelman. As always, there'll be spoilers and plenty of swearing. But if that doesn't scare you, then steal some sunglasses, make some popcorn, and toast your pizza. Because today we're discussing 1980s influencers. Austin, would you like to give me a synopsis for the film? Yeah, I would love to. It's from the ever-reliable source of IMDb. Mm-hmm. You know I always pronounce it wrong. I'm always I- IMBD, which is not what it is. But I always say that. Huh. And now all of you know that. And now I'm going to start thinking that I'm doing it wrong? No. Nope. All right. So the, the incredible synopsis from the ever-reliable IMDb. Smithereens. A talent-challenged girl tries to promote herself to stardom in New York's waning punk music scene. Two problems with that. One. First, we don't know that she's talentless because we don't get to see what her talent is. Mm-hmm. So screw you. Yep. And number two. B. Waning? Yeah. I, punk? Yeah, it will we'll never wane. <laughs> it will be forever. So something I learned in researching to discuss today's episode on smithereens was that I actually don't want to do too much research into what the filmmaker has to say about the movie. Why is that? Well, sometimes I find that the director can undercut their artwork Mm -hmm. by just talking a little too much about certain things either defining the film in a way that you disagree with Mm -hmm. being like wow i didn't think the film was about that at all i saw it as something else or just rambling about the ease of which they're successful or you know telling backstories about the crap making of the film that Mm -hmm. you just it just kind of rubs you wrong yeah and so i do find it interesting to realize that putting too much value in the concept of the filmmaker as the auteur, the director as the auteur right. of a film, as opposed to how many other people went into making the film and seeing it as a group effort, mm-hmm. it can it can be problematic. Yeah, it it's interesting. Like you bring that up, and it, it's interesting to just think about how many people do it does take to make a film, even on really small sets. You still have people who are like doing lighting or doing costuming and you and those people are making as many important contributions to the production as the director and the actors mm-hmm. uh, like how you design a set or what what spaces the uh, location scout has found really tells as much about a story and you think about something like smithereens and where they shot it we talked a little bit about this on the last episode like this film smithereens has such a distinct sense of space and time yeah. like i look at the back of the the dvd and i'm like oh it's made in 1981 okay it's new york in 1981 but i also feel that yeah like when i'm watching it like i can get the as Werner herzog once said i can get the accountant's truth but i can also get my my the truth that i feel mm-hmm. and the truth that i feel is this film knows where it is mm-hmm. knows what it's about and it does a really interesting job presenting all those narratives mm-hmm. because it's it's a unique piece of art especially for what is always in the popular consciousness Mm -hmm. yeah i speaking of space i love it when a film authentically uses actual locations Mm -hmm. i think that's really important not every film should do that obviously yeah i mean as much as we want little women to take place in 1865 and us authentically travel back in time to film in 1865 Mm -hmm. okay fine 
Mm-hmm. Not really an option yet. Yet. All right, I'm working on my time machine. Yeah. Uh, it's what our garage is for. It's what the garage is for. Just kidding, it's gonna be a cinema. Um, uh, but, 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 no, I do. I love it when indie films use real spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that uh, in Smithereens, she used the Peppermint Lounge, yeah. which is was an actual location that they would all go and drink at and hang out at and have a great time and... There's another bar they use that was around the corner from their apartment. Mm-hmm. And so you you can't reconstruct that. No. Like you, it just, when they rebuild it for films, it's just obviously not yeah. real. And it's fun when I think about our films, like our short film, Strange as Angels, was shot in The Rocket Cat, which if you're in Philly, you may remember The Rocket Cat as this really fabulous dive coffee shop in Fishtown that is no longer. Yeah. Um, and it was a really great space for yeah. art and for friendship and all kinds of fun things were going on there. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't exist anymore. So I love that it still exists in our short. The thing about found locations is exactly what you're saying, is that they speak to the exact time and when they were when they were filmed there. You look throughout the entirety of Smithereens and you couldn't do uh, like a, a sex in the city type tour in New York now of Mm-mm. those locations because you would only find new buildings or mm-hmm. or lots or reconstructed histories that are no longer the thing that it was it it has the ghosts of the place but it doesn't have the place Mm-mm. like they're emptied out they're hollowed another thing i love about the fact that they use found spaces in this film is that it also, while it really documents 1981 in New York City and the Lower East Side, it also reflects other cities we've lived in. You know, it really feels like Seattle in the late 90s when we were there and the dive bars that we went to mm-hmm. and the music scene that we were part of and the theater scene that we were part of that was really scrappy and we made it ourselves and we spent endless hours in theaters and endless hours at dive bars like Earl's. Mm-hmm. And it really feels like late 90s grungy urban decay of seattle which no longer is yeah and it feels like philly uh back in the two like before the 2010s ish Mm -hmm. when it was also super urban decay and all these wonderful dive bars that we were going to and things like that which still some exist and are awesome but Mm -hmm. a lot has changed in the last decade here in philly yeah it's i wonder i wonder what you think about this like it feels like at a certain age, you can look back with a level of nostalgia that doesn't bring kind of like a dampening to your active spirit, but reminds you of the things that you like to do or liked to do at that point and mm-hmm. can give you energy or spirit moving forward with with that remembrance. Because I look at Smithereens and I'm like, oh my God, I want that energy. Let me be clear. I don't think any of the characters, literally any of the characters are good people or no. that or that I would really like to hang out with them. Definitely not. But I do find that their energy, the the joy de vie, the 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 energy of life that they have is so infectious. Yeah. And and there's something to that. And while they're being shitheads and terrible users and takers from each other, like it's like they are really really incredibly vibrant people yeah and and you can see that also in the the camera work Mm -hmm. i think the cinematography is also vibrant it moves quickly it's it's got these wonderful reflection shots Mm -hmm. like there's this one shot when paul's in the van and he's trying to get rid of ren and he's just he's 
you know, just stopping. He doesn't want to go anywhere. And she's kind of defeated because he's trying to reject her. Yeah. This, and, this happens early on in the film. This is when, uh, when she's lost her apartment, been kicked out of it. She's tried to find other places to stay and he's the last stop. Mm-hmm. And she runs in front of his van and mm-hmm. basically throws herself in the, in the, the back of the van and he kicks her out. And she's standing there in the reflection of the side mirror. Mm-hmm. And it's this perfect shot of her and a perfect shot of him. Mm-hmm. And I just love the use of mirrors yeah. in this film, which I think also brings a lot of energy because you're, again, reflecting characters. You're mm-hmm. not always looking at them straight on in the mm-hmm. way that we kind of do in real life. We're like looking out a periphery at people. And, yeah. and I just found it very Bergman-esque mm-hmm. um, in a lot of those shots. There's another one in with Eric in his apartment, in his loft, mm-hmm. where he's reflected in the mirror, but we're looking at... Ren mm-hmm. and I just really like the use of mirrors and I like just the energy of the cinematography I, I agree with you completely on that I think that I think that there's a really interesting activity to the film like you, you said that it was shot on uh, 16 mm-hmm. millimeter 16 or it, mil. it was shot on 16 mil and the thing is like you can tell that this camera is light you can tell that they have freedom to just run around like there's a scene where and near the end where she's getting kicked out of the peppermint lounge and uh, the bouncers dragging her out and you can see the boom mic operator shadow on her. On a way. You can see, cause there, there, there's a spotlight behind the camera that's shining down, but the, like you look carefully, you can see, you can see the whole crew. You can see them like they're moving with her as she's running away, but the room is supposed to be full of people. So it ends up looking very expressionistic in the sense of giving more, more, people to the scene than there are and they're just shapes and bodies and this last time i could see the boom mic in as one of the shapes in the shadows and like there's there's a vibrancy to that and and to me i don't give a fuck if i see a a boom mic in a uh in a shot Mm -mm. like i don't want it like touching an actor but if i see a shadow or like famously (laughs) there's a a a shot in a a truffaut film where you can see the camera operator and he was asked later why he let that be in the film. And he's like, well, it was the best take from the actor. Why would I ruin that? Yeah. And like, there's an element to that. Like, I know I'm watching a film. Like mm-hmm. I, I can dis, like I can disassociate from life and be like, Oh, I'm enjoying this film. And these things are happening. Da da da. But I also know I'm watching a film. It's a like, construction. I'm not, I'm not daffy enough to be like, well, it's real. Like the matrix that's real. Like that's <laughs> happening. This is real. Wait, is it not? <laughs> you know, hey, that's, the scenes are so enjoyable and honest. Like even I was when we were watching it this last time. There's so many little issues with uh, continuity mm-hmm. that, like the scene that you were talking about with her in the van, it really looks like it's shot in two different locations. Mm-hmm. There's a location where he sees her in the reflection, and then there's a location when the camera moves to the back, and there seems to be a building behind them Mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to be in the other shots the other shots when you look through his driver's side uh window out to the out out of the car you see a a a vacant destroyed lot and you're like which is it is Mm -hmm. he next to this or is he next to that like and it doesn't fucking matter because the energy of the film and the storytelling of the film and the people involved in the film the acting is so captivating. The story is so captivating to me that it, who gives a shit if there's little continuity errors? Yeah. They fucking made it. Well, it's what we said on set because we had such a tiny set, we couldn't have one person focused on continuity. Mm-hmm. And so our perspective was, if you noticed any continuity er- errors, you've probably watched it more than once and we've won. Yeah. Because if you've watched our film twice, woo! Yeah. 
I am here for it. Yeah. It's it gets back to that kind of Robert Altman attitude of like you don't listen to a song once you don't you don't look at a painting once you like you watch it multiple times and if it's good enough to do that there's something to it yeah. like like if it sticks in your craw enough this film definitely sticks in my craw yeah like something that I like I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that I'd like to go back to is I think all of these characters are despicable not just Ren and Eric but Paul as well he's such an asshole he he acts as if he owns ren from Mm -hmm. the moment he sees her Mm -hmm. he acts as if she's his property and that she owes him some sort of explanation and while she moves into his van and takes advantage of him it's an advantage that he i also think has agency in he said it was okay yeah and and i i disagree that i yes i don't think she's taking advantage of him i think she's asking for something very direct he has every right to say no mm-hmm. but he's like yeah meanwhile he like cops like a, a look down her he's like purposefully while she's asleep pulling her dress out so he can look at her boobs mm-hmm. and she didn't consent to that right just because she's taking a nap in his van right like he's a creep yeah he totally is a creep everybody's a creep in this movie well and i love the little detail like he talks about the girl who he has a picture in his van of this woman that he was in love with, this young woman that he was in love with, that we don't really get an answer on who she was. We don't even know if they were in a relationship Wait, or not. She authorized him to take that picture. Yeah. like, Or if this is like, if he has the same relationship with her as he does with Ren. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the film, you see a, a shot of his van and he's trying to get to New Hampshire by the end of the film. And he's left his van on his way to New Hampshire. And if you look at the side of the van, there's a heart drawn that says Marianne and it's in New Hampshire. I did see that. And it's like, Oh, are you stringing along this other girl to just take her to New York or take her to New Hampshire and, and have her be there by your side to show off to this other woman? What kind of fucking creep are you? He's a total creep. He's a total creep. He follows her. Yeah. He's, Pretty much stalks her a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he gets all pissed off when she's making friends with Richard Hell, you know? Yeah, when when she gets in Eric's orbit. Mm-hmm. They do a lot of really interesting things with character in this film. Mm-hmm. Because I think that from what I was reading of reviews uh, in its time, a lot of it pointed out how much of a talentless hack Ren is. But she has a lot of energy and she's engaging as a character. But she's... Uh, She's hard to watch and hard to be around and all of this. There seems to be a pushback on her being a what would be now called a difficult woman, meaning that she has decisions that her that are her own. Mm-hmm. And that there's a there's a focus on her difficultness that is not laid at the feet of either Eric or uh, Paul for me. And that's a really fascinating contemporary conversation that we still have today. Like Paul and Eric act very similar to her. Mm-hmm. They absolutely do. We're talking about the gender roles of the takers. There's a wonderful line in the apartment. Some people take and others get took. Mm-hmm. And that is what I kept thinking when we were watching Smithereens was that the three main characters were all takers. Mm-hmm. And I know that Paul would probably say he was being took, yeah. which is bullshit. He's just as much of a taker as Ren and as Eric. And we were discussing this last night that Ren is treated so differently 
for doing the exact same actions as Eric is. Mm -hmm. And to call her talentless is fascinating because we don't know if she's talentless. We don't hear her sing. We don't see her perform on an instrument. Mm -hmm. We know she's trying to start a band and we assume she's bullshitting because we never see her rehearsing. Mm -hmm. But she also is almost immediately kicked out of her apartment. Yeah. So we don't get a chance to see whether or not she has an instrument in there, if she is performing with a band, if she's trying to find one. We don't know if she's talentless at all. We no. don't know anything about her skill set. There's there is a lot of assumption that we as an audience make about Ren because the film doesn't choose to show her in any other light. And mm-hmm. that that is both a really interesting choice by the filmmakers and also a, a interesting thing about an audience to be like, oh, because she's hustling really fucking hard mm-hmm. throughout the whole film, all of her energies are focused on survival and hustling. Yeah. Do you think that this sort of uh, this sort of climate in America where we are uh, over glamorizing su- hustle culture right right now in oh. in 2022 and and for year for a few years before started in in 2016 or some mm-hmm. started at some date. It's been part of America since the beginning. Yeah. We have been told that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we have to do everything we can to survive on our own because we are the ones who are in control of our own destiny. And this film shows that back then from her. And yet we're supposed to look, as you're saying, because of her gender, we're, we look down or the film looks down or we as a culture look down on her through the film. Mm-hmm. Whereas Eric is doing the same fucking shit. He's the exact same. He's staying in somebody else's apartment. Yep. We never see him play an instrument. Mm-hmm. We never hear him sing. We see a big poster he made. We see an album that he, he says he made. Mm-hmm. So we have to assume at some point that the band is real, mm-hmm. but we just don't know if she hasn't had an opportunity to make an album yet. Yeah. Because she, she talks to him about how hard it is. Yeah. And, and the parallel is there as well. Like she, like he has a a wife that we only find out that yeah. that they're married in the last 10 minutes of the film. Uh, and she has this other partner that she has this, uh, uh, she has Paul in the van who she's stringing along. Like they have these, these two characters have exact parallels mm-hmm. throughout the entirety of the film. And that, and, and yet I think that we look at Eric and think that he's a fucking scumbag. But, you know, he's, like, charming, and he's, like, talented, and he's going to go to L.A. And, and he also gets opportunities. Like, yeah. he has the woman who shows up that he's having lunch with who wants to pay for everything mm-hmm. so that she can be a hanger-on mm-hmm. to him, somewhat like Ren. But, like, he's getting this opportunity over and over again, it feels, to six, to yeah. fail upwards, Oh, maybe. yeah. It's white guy syndrome. Yeah. Fail upwards. And it's so frustrating because you watch it with that perspective and you think... Paul has the van he can sell for $700 and move on. The van that he says he's had forever, but you get a pretty sense that dad bought it for him. And then he's had it for a long time and he drove across the country, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. He has resources. Eric literally takes the money that uh, that Eric and Ren stole and takes it all. And doesn't give her any of it, even though she did all the labor. Not even just stole. They hold up a man and make him take off his pants and humiliate him. Yes. It's all. And, and like I was watching this last night and I was thinking to myself, if Ren and Eric ended up together, the film that they that we would be watching is the budding of a serial killer. Like th- <sighs> like they would be holding people up until that until they realized that they were leaving witnesses and then they would be killing these people. 
And it would be any sort of episode of like crime junkies or red handed. <laughs> and they would be talking about Eric and Ren, these terrible fucking monsters who started off with these petty crimes because they were down and out and they were just struggling artists and just they couldn't trying to make their way to and, Hollywood. And it's funny because Eric has this one album that's now listened to by everybody who is a fan of crime. crime. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I was thinking you're going to say Trouble in Paradise. No. Okay. No. Let's go super dark. Well, they super dark. They fucking just humiliate this guy and they pull a gun on him and and, and hold him up in the back of a taxi that Eric jumps in and is like, I'm just going to jump in for a ride. And then he puts a gun on him. It's like, these guys are fucking monsters in this moment. Jerks. Yeah. Everybody's a jerk. And, And they are equal assholes. Yes. Equal opportunity assholes. But Eric gets all the opportunities. Yep. And I find that a really interesting element to this to the time of this piece and i think still true today mm-hmm. and the one difference is that i would say between eric and ren is that we get a scene where we see ren treating her friend well cecile i love cecile from ohio cecile from ohio because somebody has to live there mm-hmm. which true somebody so has to cute and, and, cecile's and, so cute She's she's adorable, but like she also wants to meet Eric because he's in a band. He's in a band, and there's a scene where Ren holds it over her because Ren needs a place to stay, and Cecilia, Cecile's roommates hate Ren for cause, and so she because holds it. Ren sucks probably. <laughs> it's a pain in the ass. Because because Ren would eat all. Ren feels like the type of roommate who would eat all your food and then complain that you don't have any more food and then tell you that she'll pay you next week for perpetuity. Oh, God, yeah. Ren is absolutely the one who makes com- very specific demands on what groceries you have to buy. Yeah. She, she feels never pay for. She feels like the person who would put one thing in the fridge, put it to one side and say, the right side is my side of the fridge. And there'd be one item there and be like, but the whole fucking fridge, like, and you eat all of my stuff. Right, what right. the fuck but is you this? You never touch her. Yeah. She's the worst roommate. She's the worst. So she's holding it over. Ren is holding over Cecile. The fact that she knows this guy, Eric. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and that she's going to be touring with him and da-da-da. And then she decides to go visit Eric. And then she takes Cecile. And the next shot, they're at Eric's flat, which we should really clarify. It's Billy's Billy's flat. apartment. Billy, who is one of my two favorite characters in the film. I love the actor. Yeah. That, that guy, Billy, is fucking phenomenal. But so Billy is getting super drunk with Cecile on the floor. Oh, yeah. And Ren is taking photos of herself in front of a picture of Eric. The Polaroid selfie. Yep. I yep. loved it. And it, We have always had selfies. Yes, we've always had selfies. They were once called paintings, self-portraits, in fact. <laughs> they just ah, took just a... broke me. They just took a really long time. It's like, I gotta hold this pose. <laughs> well... You're correct, Austin. Yeah, mimes holding a mirror while painting. <laughs> I still like in Ted Lasso, the one character who's like, it's an ussy. Yeah. Because it's, it's not it's just a, me. It's us. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Under that guy's taking a portrait of somebody, it's a Yui then. <laughs> Since I'm just taking a picture of you. <laughs> super fucking dumb. Uh, anyway, so she's taking photos of herself but and, and Cecile's super drunk. And the reason I bring this up is just because 
Billy asks, and Billy wants to sleep with everybody. He's trying, like, he is unrelenting in his sexual, his sexual creep factor. Like, he is super creepy, super wants to sleep with anyone, doesn't care about consent, not really. I'll be honest with you, I don't, you know, he is creepy because he's groping Ren. Yeah, and she's asleep. asleep. So, yeah, yeah, you know, he's creep. Yeah. But I didn't find him super creepy with Cecile, but you're totally right. He's a creep. Yeah. Yeah. Just because you're not a creep in one in one moment doesn't negate the fact you were creepy Mm, before. It also true. It also doesn't say that you were always a creep. Like he's just like he has creepy tendencies. He can go with creep. He's a creep. Things that make me upset about Billy. One, he has a toothbrush that he allows Ren to use. (laughs) Granted, Ren starts using it before he says anything. Two, he has just a bathtub full of booze that he's on the floor that he's choosing from to get drunk with Cecile. Three, when Cecile says, when he, he asks if Cecile wants to take a bath and she says only if you have bubbles, basically. And he thinks about it and he goes and gets some dove, like spray soap to put into the tub, which I thought was pretty crafty. Right. But it's kind of, it's also, I can't mean, I can't imagine it'd be good for her vagina. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine it would be good for her skin in any inside or out. Yeah. Let's really protect the vagina. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I think that's your new slogan. Protect the vagina. Yeah. I do feel that way. We should protect it by letting us make our own goddamn choices, government. (laughs) So not meaning to laugh through that comment (laughs) as I awkwardly do, uh, She says, she says only if you have bubbles, he goes and gets some dish soap from inside the fridge, which, which we have to assume the fridge is not on. It's probably just a cupboard. Oh, that might be true. Yeah. Yeah. It might be on, but I just kind of get the vibe it's on. Continue. Anyway, like that kind of did break my brain. Like, cause he, cause Eric earlier eats pizza that, that he puts in between slices of bread. So he has a sandwich that's, that comes from the the fridge. I don't know. Weird meat. Yeah, it's it's strange. Anyway, like my point is, Ren is like, don't do this to yeah. Cecile, mm-hmm. and pulls Cecile up and takes her out. So mm-hmm. takes her out of the apartment and takes her home. Or at least I assume she takes her home. Like we don't see her take her home, but I'm assuming because mm-hmm. Cecile Cecile's next scene at her home. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the reason that I bring all this up is that Ren does something kind for her friend and doesn't just fucking leave her there to. To, mm-hmm. to rot and die. And while she does some really terrible things, like stick up that guy and uh, and be generally shitty to all of her roommates, all the people in her life, like she does do things that give her a sense of empathy. And I think that's a really important distinction between her and Eric because there is never a moment mm-hmm. that Eric is doing anything other than trying to advance himself. Yeah, I mean, think about the first time we meet Eric. He shows up with his wife, mm-hmm. uh, unbeknownst to us, in a cab and then throws her back in the cab, mm-hmm. tells her she can't come, that he's sick of her, and then throws money at the cab driver as opposed to her. She's like, I don't have any money. And he pays the cab driver and he doesn't give her control of the funding. Yeah. He gives it to another man. Yeah. And and I fucking hate him in that moment because mm-hmm. I mean, he's so disrespectful to her mm-hmm. but he's just, I'm just on so many levels mm-hmm. just the, the fact that he threw the money to the cab driver was like you piece of shit yeah you piece of, and we don't even know she's his wife at this point mm-hmm. we just assume they're probably dating or they're having a, a couple's fight or something like that yep what a but garbage pile mm-hmm. and so if you do compare that to the way he treats the way that Ren treats Cecile mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. is she does get her out of there. She yep. protects her friend. She sticks. I, I find that she's annoying, but she's good to women. Mm-hmm. She's who she ditches are men. Right. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, other than her landlord who throws water on her. Well, she hasn't paid her landlord in four months. Yeah, it's fair. So, Austin, do you have a favorite scene? I'm really struck by a, a, a scene basically at the halfway point that I think that you, that you also love in the film. It's a scene with the, the sex worker getting into uh, Paul's van. I love this scene. She is, the actress who plays the the sex worker is incredible. She was only in about like three or four films and then she died. But she is so incredible. Like mm-hmm. there's something just extraordinary about her performance yeah she's Uh, magic yeah there's an old i think it's howard hawk's comment that a great film is three good scenes and no bad ones Mm -hmm. or three great scenes and no bad ones i'm not sure the exact verbiage of it and this scene is just phenomenal Mm -hmm. like it's for me i hope to have scenes like this in movies that i make Mm -hmm. like it's just so wonderfully lived in and and creative between the two people like Mm -hmm. She could, she gets in the car because it's cold outside and she wants some place warm to stay mm-hmm. and she offers her services, which she turns down. And then I love it when she offers to see her scar. It's in a really unique place. Yeah. And he turns <laughs> it down and then she hands him a sandwich mm-hmm. that, uh, that, what is it? A tuna sandwich or a chicken, a chicken salad? salad sandwich that her mom made the, a couple days ago. It has mayonnaise. <laughs> and, and, and he nibbles at it, and she just eats part of an a, of an egg. Yeah, hard boiled egg. She's like, "Oh, don't worry, I got a hard boiled egg." I got a hard. And she just, oh, she's so cute. It, it it's it's really really hard to describe how good the scene is because it's also like two minutes long. Mm-hmm. It's it, very short. All it is is she gets in the car, they have a short conversation, she leaves, and it, I think that maybe that's the most fascinating thing about it is. In two minutes, she has made an indelible mark on my cinematic experience mm-hmm. that I like. I will always remember her performance, her laconic speaking style. There's just yeah. there's something incredibly memorable about her that is wonderful. I think what grabbed me the most about her performance was her the the work she did with her eyes. Mm-hmm. In that, I don't know that she ever looked at him or looked at him for very long. Mm-hmm. And if she did, it was sort of under heavy lids and maybe out of the side. And it wasn't because she was nervous or she was embarrassed about anything. It was more of like as if maybe she's performing as if she was very high on drugs Mm -hmm. or she's performing as just beaten down Mm -hmm. by her life. Like the way she offers her services are so like, I mean, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? I just need to be warm for a minute. I could care less what you want to do. I just need to sit in this car for a while and warm up. Yeah. And... When he doesn't want to ex- trade for any of that is when she offers, well, okay, well, you're letting me use your van, so here's a sandwich. Yeah. And it's just so genuine and sweet, the mm-hmm. offer of the sandwich. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you get to know her in that moment, but also just her work with her eyes was really interesting because I feel like, I don't know, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but I saw, we watched um, Mayor of Easttown. Yeah. Okay. And at the beginning, in the first episode, there's a character who's a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. And... I found his performance fine, but his eyes betrayed the fact that he wasn't a heroin addict. And I mean, one of the reasons we know that is because we live in Philly near the Badlands and we see heroin addicts all the time. Yeah. So you have a sense of what it actually looks like. Mm -hmm. And, and there was something about the way he performed that it was just, nope. Yeah. I don't know. None of this is real. None of this is researched. 
Right. Whereas I felt like her character, not saying she researched and became a sex worker mm-hmm. or any of that, but I think she just put a lot of energy into creating a very opposite character from Ren. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. There, there's a level of trauma in her performance that is unspoken that mm-hmm. feels really honest and genuine. And I, I, I don't know anything about the actor. I don't mm-hmm. know anything about their life. And I, and I don't want to go on like presupposing anything about mm-hmm. about them. But like there's something just so sweet, genuine and kind about the way she handles the scene. And she owns the scene. Yeah. W- with Paul. Like, yeah. He's doing fine work and he does fine work throughout the entire entirety of the film. He allows her to just shine and she just takes that and fucking runs with it. Or rather he gets out of her way. Yeah. She... She does take the scene and run with it, mm-hmm. which happens in a lot of films. I think there's always, in almost every film, you have one person who pops. Yep. And in this film, it is 100% her. Yeah. And and, and I would say the same thing goes for Billy. In his scenes, yeah. he just takes the spotlight from whoever he's working with. And he's just like, who is this creepazoid in the corner? He's fucking doing his thing. And he's just rocking the scene. It is almost as if because both of their paces are so opposite mm-hmm. of Ren, the freneticness of Ren, of Paul of Eric, they're they're high energy. Mm-hmm. They both drop it down a lot. Yeah. They tonally shift the film. Mm-hmm. Both of them is what makes them stand out. It, I would almost even go so far as to say they know where they are, mm. and they 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 more or less have accepted their reality. Whereas the other three are struggling to define their reality, and they do not want to be likened to these other places that they could go. I mean, you get to. That kind of gets us to the last moment of the film with Ren, where she's, where Paul is left. He's sold his van. Eric has taken the money that they stole and stolen it from her and run out to L.A. And she is alone with her bag of clothes walking down the middle of the street. And there's a guy in his car trying to pick her up. And the film ends with him saying, basically we might have a good time together. And she turns and looks back at him after rebuffing his advances for the first portion of the scene. And the film freeze frames as she looks back and then it ends. And it's, it's really, really sad in that moment because I don't know if she's looking back to start a new chapter of her life with this guy, like that she has exhausted all of her avenues for possible hope. And there's, this is what's left for her if she's going to end up like all the sex workers in the film or is she going to or is she going to be the person that we've met and continue to fight like what is her next step and i think the film wisely ends before we have any sort of idea what yeah. her next step is because who fucking knows i love that we don't know and it doesn't really matter no, because we just another creep along her way she's going to have so many creeps yeah and we've gotten to know ren and we can make our own guesses. She's a tough bitch. She'll yeah. be fine. Yeah. But we've seen how her sister, like there's a great scene with her sister and her sister's husband and her and, oh. and her sister's kid. And beefaroni. And beefaroni. <laughs> which just sounds, just sounds awful. Oh, it just makes me want to barf. Like, it, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not great. But like her, like her uh, brother-in-law is just a piece of work. I mean, he's like everybody else with, with Ren was like, do you want money? You're not going to get any fucking money from me. Yeah, and she's exhausted her yeah. resources with them. But he's just a shithead. He's a terrible person. Yeah. He the is, way he talks to his wife. Yeah. Demanding shit. 
giving her no space. And then the way he talks to Ren on the at the end of that. Yeah, that's something that I also want to like. I I also do want to highlight because the thing that he says to her at the end of their scene is just atrocious. What is his line? He says, "I guess you're just going to have to have that kid." Yeah. And then he laughs. Yeah. You piece of shit. So, but it's such a great line mm-hmm. because we find out, okay, so he obviously helped and paid for the her previous abortion. And this time he's so dismissive. There's so many things that I want to unpack about that right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many things. Uh, the, dis- the, the, the shame mm-hmm. of abortion, like somehow she's the only person uh, who is to blame for it. Yep. The fact that... Well, anyway, I could go down a rabbit hole of how angry that line makes me, but yep. it's such a wonderful definition of that character yeah. and of that world that her sister has bought into by by following, by marrying this guy mm-hmm. who sucks. So even though her sister keeps saying, you go home to mom and dad in New Jersey, you should go home. Mm-hmm. I mean, if this was the husband you chose, I'm going to have to venture a guess that it's not so fucking great at home yeah. and that Ren is working real hard not to go back because it's not so great there. And it's an interesting kind of thing to sit and think about for a minute in regards to all the things and all the choices that she has to make. If that's the underlying, like if he said the quiet part out loud Mm -hmm. uh, in what he said, and she knows that, and that's how she views the world, which I think, like, I think is not an unfair way to to view her character Mm -hmm. and and to, to view like how women have to work in in America in a lot of ways, like Mm -hmm. knowing that men are saying and thinking terrible things behind their backs and, and viewing them as items and, and as disposable Mm -hmm. and that the culture has, uh, has only made that belief stronger by presenting a, uh, a youth dominated culture that is repeatable with the same visions of very slightly different women over and over and over again as the way to look at beauty and wealth and Mm -hmm. success like if that's if we view her struggle in the world and her continual fighting in the world through that kind of lens yeah she's gonna fucking be awful to people Mm -hmm. because the world is awful to her Mm -hmm. like yeah it seems like the world sucks for women almost almost as if that's a that's a thing but but like it's not to excuse her behavior, but it is to allow for an empathy for her behavior. It's almost the antithetical antithetical version of like Walter White, where you're like, oh, you're a white dude who got cancer and you got upset. So the only things that made you be pissed is that it is either societal change or cancer. Like <laughs> Yeah. To- right. You had you were brilliant, you had access to this huge what his scientist lab yep. that he was part of and, and but he walked away because yeah. his wife left because he had integrity because well, yeah she cheated on him or something yeah Walter White sucks yeah it's like okay so i spent i spent 60 hours learning that this guy was a shithead and i knew that in the first episode or i watched an hour and a half and i saw i saw hour and a half of a film and i have the same amount of empathy if not more for this person because of the societal because of the societal issues that she comes up against oh yeah tell me which one's a, a more interesting piece of art 100 percent. yeah Smith and the rains yeah. we like it so much better yeah it's true it is interesting mm-hmm. and and that character it is interesting to s- see how many times she is attacked for just trying to make her life better mm-hmm. 
she definitely sucks. Like there's a lot of her that isn't fun to be around, Mm -hmm. but she's also really authentic. We know so many people like this, like every one of those characters Mm -hmm. and it's 2022 and this was May 1981. Mm -hmm. So not a lot has changed. And so I love that we spend time with a character who isn't super beautiful and like so smart and so fun to be around. Like it's much more fun to spend time with people. I don't know. We just recently watched, um, the scary on 61st mm-hmm. and there's another film that's a super indie film um contempor- just made this last year or last couple of years and um in new york mm-hmm. about three people that we definitely know people like this yeah um minus the murder hopefully yeah, nobody's boss. got nobody's told us yet yeah if they're murderers um please don't yeah uh but but also garbage people yeah. these people suck they're not fun to be around and and i find it i i do enjoy some uh, films along these lines. Something that I feel strongly about when watching a film is that there is a point of view that's being taken to watch the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of things that interest me about Smithereens uh, in this regards. But let me first start by saying that, so in a book we go, there's a first person, second person, third person story. And that's generally the types of narrative structure that we're engaged in. And there are versions of that like, reliable narrator unreliable narrator like when books change subject like who's talking or or if it goes from first person to second person or 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 first person to third person like i think i think very specifically about reading beloved for the first time and having this the tonal changes when we are going from beloved's point of view versus the rest of the book so there's there's different ways to 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 look at a book smithereens is interesting because I'm not exactly sure which narrative structure it's taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The movie is called Smithereens. It's not called Ren's Journey or something mm-hmm. about Ren. Smithereens is the band that Eric has. Mm-hmm. It's his band. So it's like whose story is it when the bo- when the movie comes out and tells you that it's about the band that this guy has that we never see that we never see them perform we hear them we sh- she listens to their album a bunch throughout the film but we never see the band mm-hmm. we only see the pictures of him eric in his loft that he shares with mm-hmm. billy but none of the rest of the band but never but nobody else we see him hustle and we see her perceivably glom on to that but it's not really clear ever what the band is outside of a thing. And maybe that's her point uh, of the film, that the point is is that everybody's dreaming of the ephemeral punk rock band to be part of something big, mm-hmm. that everyone in this film is looking for being the next big thing. Mm-hmm. So it might as well be this magical band named Smithereens. Right. It could be anything that everybody's working towards. When I was watching the film the last time, I was just thinking about how there could be a read of this film that everything is her point of view. Mm-hmm. That even the scenes that she's not in, this is how she would imagine everybody else acting. Like how she would imagine Paul act when he's not around her. Like he would like because how he acts when he's with her, he acts like he's a sub, like she's his dominant force. And he asks for things and whines for things, but he's definitely submissive to her. Mm-hmm. And that's echoed through all the scenes where she's not in with him. Like he's just basically waiting to be plugged in until and she shows up. Yeah, yeah. He's almost like sitting on his USB charger. Yeah. 
And he's just waiting for her to come back so he can be reactivated. Exactly. And so the film could be, like I'm not saying it should be or is, but it could be viewed through that sort of a narrative structure. Like this is game of Sims. Yeah. Like she is controlling, she's controlling this whole narrative. This is her memoir telling the story of this time in her life where she was trying to get with this band, the smithereens like this captures the whole smithereens era of her life. Yeah. I like that. And, and if we like in that guys, like these people act these specific ways and they act, they act up and aggressive and hyper versions of themselves because of how she would be telling the story. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's like, I think it's an interesting read of how they tell the story. And within that, another thing that I noticed that I we were chatting about before is there are a bunch of fade to blacks in mm-hmm. the film. Yeah. And I kind of hate fade to blacks. In general, yes. I, I, I just, they don't work for me, not a lot. But here, upon this, upon this watching, I thought of them as kind of chapter breaks. Like, mm-hmm. Like this is this part of chapter and then we end and then this thing happens and then we end and then this thing happens and it's a little bit longer because the main thrust of it is still around her living in the van and then it ends and then there's another part and then it ends and then there's an end. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like the film is telling its story in these chapter headings that it doesn't need actual headings to be like this date or this thing or whatnot. It when just, the bride decides to go yeah, kill Oh, Renishi. Yeah. Doesn't need a chapter title. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it, it doesn't it doesn't need something as uh, uniformly simple mm-hmm. as telling you exactly what it is. <laughs> I like that. But it does align with your concept of it being maybe memoir-esque. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. It's it's an like it's interesting just how Susan Seidelman and her and the writers chose to structure and the editor to, chose to structure this film. Mm-hmm. Another thing I really liked in the film are the random TVs playing. These little tiny TV sets in black and white. I think the second one's in color maybe. And it's the end of the night. And so it goes to, what do you call it? Fuzz? What is it called back then when it would have the White noise. White noise-ish. Yeah. yeah. It would just go to the Also pixels. called me talking. White noise. <laughs> Austin speaking. Um <laughs> But it, it had that the end. It was when, when there wasn't seven hundred channels and they weren't going all night. That the programming would end, mm-hmm. or if it was left on, it would start up again on something else. Like in in the morning at Billy and Eric's apartment, it's church music. Yeah, it's obviously evangelicals with a phone number. Yeah, that you can call to support. And I just thought that was so interesting to see. Just what what was going on in the background, what they were capturing. Mm-hmm. And I assume it's just whatever they were shooting. It, they just turn it on. Maybe she did strategically plan it. It's hard to say. Yeah. Super low budget, so probably yeah. not. Yeah. But I just liked it. I liked that, the vibe of getting to see a little piece. Again, it goes back to what we were discussing before. Mm-hmm. The getting a sense of space, like a sense of time. Yeah. Like you don't need to open with the year is 1981. Mm-hmm. Because we're getting it from all the little cues. There's nothing about the film that says that it has to take place at a specific time or a specific date. Mm-hmm. Like it's interesting every time that a film says present day mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, but if I watch this in 40 years, this is not going to look like today. If you feel really important to be like, this is the day it is, 
do it some somehow a little bit more interesting. Have the person listen to a podcast and say, be like an NPR podcast where they say the date at the top of it. Don't just be present day. If you feel the need to fucking tell us when it happens, be specific. Don't be vague. Do better. Do better. Yeah. And she does. Yeah. She does by having all these little cues in there. Yeah. Uh, Tony Zhao would be so proud of you for saying that. <laughs> yes. If you guys haven't ever watched Every Frame of Painting on YouTube, absolutely go check it out. Tony Zhao and Taylor Ramos made incredible videos dissecting cinema. And there's only a few of them and they no longer do it, but it's 100% worth exploring. Yeah. And that's your stumble upon recommendation for this episode. I like that you have a stumble upon re- recommendation voice. Thank you. I just came up with it right now. Yeah, I, Can you tell? I No, I couldn't. <laughs> so in doing some research for the film, I came across this review from 1982 or whatever from the New York Times when the film came out. Ooh. Uh, Smithereens gets off to a fast start. Thanks to Susan Berman's feisty performance and the vitality with which her story is told. Later on, as its tactics grow more and more familiar, the seams begin to show. And they aren't just the seams in Wren's black net tights. Although willful inactivity seems a crucial part of the character's way of life, it's carried too far. Everyone here stays put a little longer than believable, particularly Paul, who remains parked on the highway for what feels like weeks, with nothing to do but wait for Wren to appear. He keeps offering to take her away from all this, to bring her to New Hampshire. This seems a particularly far-fetched possibility. Here's one girl who could scare the bears. And the article was called A Feisty Heroine. Oh, you can go fuck yourself, reviewer, as far as I'm concerned. What a terrible review. Do you want to, well, how, how come it's all about Paul? Do you want to guess uh, the gender of the person who wrote it? Why, Austin, would it surprise me to find out he was a man? It would. It would surprise you to find out that it was a woman. Was it? Yes. Well. <laughs> it's interesting, one, that they call her a feisty heroine, which seems really reductive to me. It does. Uh, and also, it's another point where it feels like the review is out of step with what the film is trying to actually accomplish. Yeah. Just because you can see the seams doesn't mean that the seams are not there to be seen. Yeah. I love moving forward with films with the idea that the filmmaker knows what they're doing mm-hmm. instead of being that somebody you know knows better. Exactly. It's, right? It's this sort of power play that a lot of people have in regards to how we look at a film itself. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh... I know better because the f- because I am watching it. Well, just think about how people talk in general to filmmakers. Mm-hmm. The first question we are inevitably asked by people is, well, have you done anything that I've seen? Mm-hmm. Well, how the fuck do I know what you've seen? Right. I don't know you. I saw a comic in The New Yorker that said the only people get spoken to that way are either writers or, or artists in general. Yeah. And it's not like you go up to a firefighter and say, well, have you put on any fires I've seen Yeah. to let me know that it's authentically a firefighter? Right. And you're like, go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I have made a lot of art, whether or not you're actually tapped into the indie filmmaking um, scene, if you know anything about art house cinema, I don't know. But by your question, I can safely assume you aren't. Yeah. And so that is exactly what reviewers do. They act like they know better when they have never made a film mm-hmm. and have no fucking clue how to put it together, much less even care about that specific genre or that specific style of filmmaking yeah it's it's a level of punching down or creating a hierarchy in which you are punching down like the idea that i know 
how to make a film, even if I've never made one, better than you, person who've made one, because I've watched a bunch of films and I can tell you because I have exquisite taste and I like this and this and this. And you, therefore, are blank. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating need that people have to be right before open. It makes me so angry. Yeah. That makes me angry. I hate that review. The other part of the review is very complimentary to the film. It just ends with this, like, I'm going to drag it for a minute now because it's because it's not perfect. It's not a great film. Because it's not cool to like things. Like, I think about this time in American cinema when you had uh, filmmakers like Lizzie Borden working. You had filmmakers Claudia Vile or... Chantel Ackerman. Chantel Ackerman. Or, or you have someone like Betty Gordon working. Mm-hmm. Like, you have films like Variety and Working Girls, Girlfriends by Claudia Vile, like you have all these filmmakers working who are doing and telling really independent stories outside of, and Ackerman, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Letters from New York, I believe. Uh, Letters from Home. Letters from Home. I love that film. Okay, that film's really good. You guys should watch it. Now, you have all these filmmakers working outside of what the, the, the norm is and telling all these stories, and they are just making their films the best they can. And who gives a shit if you can st- see the seams? Guess what? When I go and I see a Van Gogh painting, I can see the paint. Mm-hmm. Like I can see the canvas. Well, and the, and it goes into that whole idea of like Hollywood, the seamlessness mm-hmm. of Marvel films, of major Hollywood studio films, where there are no flaws, mm-hmm. and the boredom that that creates within yeah. cinema. I I hate that in Hollywood you just constantly have films that are so full of. CW actors, you know, mm-hmm. everybody's so beautiful in the world that it's just boring. Mm-hmm. Everybody is perfect at what they do. Every outfit is perfectly mm-hmm. designed. Every apartment is gorgeous and yeah. meant to be coveted. Yeah. It's just like, ugh, I don't want to watch another episode of Friends. I want to see authentic New York. And you brought this up earlier. Like, Friends takes place 10 years later mm-hmm. from this Isn't that film. weird? It's so fucking weird. It feels so antiseptic. Like they cleaned all of New York mm-hmm. to, to be like, no, 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 no. None of these people live here. And those people who live here are weirdos and we're going to criticize them and yep. we're going to talk down to them. But even like the thing that you're saying about the the popular film cinema, it almost feels like we're being lulled into this viewing paralysis mm-hmm. where we watch things and we're like, Oh, wow. I was able to watch this Marvel film in which nothing really happened and there weren't really any stakes for two and a half hours. And I just watched it and I enjoyed it because because there was a kind of catharsis. And, you know, I have feelings because I'm about 10 years in. Would you say that Marvel is the opiate of the masses? Yeah. Yeah. Updated quote, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) You are so proud of that. I'm just going to let you revel in that for a minute. Thank you. So, Emily. Is there something that you would like to recommend to our listeners to stumble upon? Yeah. In the vein of indie cinema, I thought it'd be really fun to recommend Pierre Attax, who is a French filmmaker and a comedian. He does physical comedy. If you can get your hands on his shorts, I would definitely recommend it. It's just very much in the style of Chaplin or you would vibe with Buster Keaton. Jacques Tati. Very Jacques Jacques Tati. And only it's more like 1950s France. Mm -hmm. So his films are just so physically humorous. They're awesome. I am so inspired by his work. Mm -hmm. And you can tell they're very indie, very low budget, probably shot on 16. I just definitely recommend you check out Pierre Dex. He's so good. Yeah. Austin, is there any films that you would like to recommend to stumble upon next? Yeah, actually... uh, Taking it in a completely different direction, though same location, mm. uh, I would like to recommend a film called The New York Ripper, which is a uh, 
Lucio Fulci film. Uh, if you have ever heard of it, uh, you might have heard of it because it was part of the Video Nasties band. There's, uh, and if you don't know what the Video Nasties are, look it up. It's a remarkable time in England in which a whole bunch of horror films were uh, viewed to be a uh, an outrage to the public and therefore not permissible in the country, or they would trim a whole bunch. Like, it's an interesting time. Anyway, the uh, the New York Ripper is a horror film. It's a slasher film. It takes place in New York. It is very violent. Um, it is very violent towards women. But the things that are really fascinating to me about it is the villain talks like a duck. He calls people to uh, to uh, taunt them, and he talks like a duck and quacks like a duck. And there's just this real weird dissidence between what he's doing and how he's perceived that the film just doesn't give a shit about making seem normal. Like, it, it even... Even everybody in the film is like, what? He's talking like, like, what? There's a guy on the phone. He's talking like a duck. Like, it's just weird. Does this have like Howard the Duck vibes? No. Okay. No. I like cannot deal with that movie. No, no. You, you don't have to think about uh, Leah Thompson having no, sex with it. the duck. No, stop it. Stop it. Don't even talk about it. Oh, the fucking movie traumatized me. I was way too small. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, anyway. That sounds it, interesting. It, it's, it's a fascinating film. Like, it's really, really enjoyable. And it's very violent. But it's... I could not recommend it enough if you like horror films that are slashers because it's fucking weird. Excellent. Thank you again for spending part of your day listening to us. Yeah, this cold, snowy day here in Philly. So as always, you can find us on Instagram at Fishtown Films. And on Twitter. But we recommend if you want to slide into our DMs, do so on Instagram because we're real bad at checking Twitter. Yeah, we're not fans. No. As always, we'll be posting in our stories the movie that we'll be discussing next. So stay tuned and check in there. Mm-hmm. Please send us along your recommendations. And if you're a filmmaker, please reach out. We'd love to see what you're creating right now. Take care, stay warm and cozy, and enjoy this blizzard that we're having. Take care. Bye.